Welcome to St. James. I'm glad that you guys are here this morning. It's good to see you. You guys have the whole section to yourself over here. Uh, look, at the, look in the uh, bulletin at the announcements. There's a, a couple of really good uh, mercy ministry opportunities in there, including international student hosting, which uh, it's a lot of fun, and it's uh, really good for you and your family, and also it's good for the students. There's some other stuff in there, too. As always, if you want to participate in the Zoom Bible studies let me know. Uh, there's one at 11.30 this morning and one at 7 o'clock on Wednesday evenings. And if you're already in, you should, I say this every week, but just so everybody knows, if you're in, you should already have received the email inviting you in. If you didn't, but you want to get it, let me know and I will send it to you. Uh, we're going to start here at the end of this month uh, another round of new members classes. So if anybody's interested in taking those, or if you know of somebody who's interested in learning more about Christianity, I've, we have yet, since the two years that I've been here, we've yet to have one of those classes where like current members haven't come just to hang out and learn more. And I think it's a lot, it's a lot of fun, that class is. Also at the end of this month, uh, somewhere near the end of this month, beginning of November, we're going to start, uh, we tried to start back at the beginning of the spring when the virus hit, we're going to start a round of youth confirmation classes. Uh, so for, for those of you who uh, haven't heard or, or don't remember me talking about this, or if you're watching the live stream and you're interested, uh, the way that youth confirmation will work here is if you have a student who, uh, student, uh, if you have a child, uh, there's no really a set age limit on it. We're not going to make it a junior high graduation thing. If you have a child who is a Christian and wants to be a Christian and you think can sit through hour-long uh, talks with other kids and myself about the Bible, and uh, has just a basic ability to understand the basic truths of Scripture, which most kids are, and you think it's appropriate for them to be in a class like this, let me know, and we're going to start that off, uh, start that up here in a couple weeks. So uh, keep those things in mind, uh, and we'll uh, go ahead and move on and begin worship. So if you could stand with me, and we'll begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, great God, whom we behold in awe and wonder, who has kept covenant and steadfast love with your people from age to age. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have known in our hearts what is right, and yet we did wrong anyway. We have been fascinated by evil, delighted with pleasing ourselves, satisfying our desires, serving ourselves with pleasures. O Lord, great God, have mercy on us according to Your steadfast love. We know You are a God who delights in goodness. 
grant that we too might delight in goodness. We know You are a God who rejoices in peace and justice. Grant that we might be at peace with ourselves and each other. O Lord, great God, grant that our hearts might be filled with the love of justice, with peace beyond understanding, with patience, with joy. These prayers we present to You, O Father, in the name of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain and yet lives forevermore. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from 1 John. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the expiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Psalm 133 is the psalm. Let me just point out to you real quick that it's poetry. And there's a piece of imagery which may not make sense to contemporary readers in here. And that's this image of uh, oil being poured on the head of the high priest and running down his head. And there's so much of it that it's just covering his beard and getting down onto his robes. Oil, the anointing of oil in the Old Testament, is this uh, acted out sign that God has chosen this person and has put his Holy Spirit on this person for this special task. So when we read this here, what it's talking about is God's presence. God's presence, not just on Aaron, but you'll see when we read here, it's God's presence on his whole people. The unity of God's people is like the presence of God enacted physically in this oil pouring down on Aaron's beard. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Epistle reading is from Ephesians 4. We've read this in here before, uh, but we're going to talk about it a little bit more this morning. I th- Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Okay, the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 18th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Uh, Jesus says, we we read this text a few weeks ago when we talked about forgiveness, but let's read it again. Uh, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Okay, so uh, again, if you weren't here last week or didn't listen to the sermon last week, uh, St. James is in an unprecedented position. Oh, that's too strong. Other churches have done it before. We're in a position where we're, going to, uh, we're thinking about um, our church government structure. And because we're redoing our constitution, not necessarily because we thought that the government structure was uh, evil or bad, but just because it was out of date and needed done. And so what we wanted to do was start at the beginning from God's word. I mean, the easy thing to do would be, to, you know, to call a local LCMS church and say, you know, hey, can you give us your constitution and we'll use that one, which we might end up doing, you know, who knows. But it would be worthwhile going to the Bible and asking God, how, are, how do you want your church to be structured and organized so that it can, it can be led for your glory and not according to our own desires? So that's what we're doing. Last week, we started off with, uh, two, from Scripture, these two key principles, which is, uh, one, God is the king of the universe, the whole universe, not just believers, but the whole universe. And two, God exercises that authority through Jesus. Now, I know that that's all real vague and like, okay, well, yeah, you know, God's in charge, Jesus is in charge. Another question we need to ask is, what does that have to do with our church? Like, how, how should, what does it have to do with how our church should be structured? And it's going to be super important, especially that second point, that God exercises his rule over the church through Jesus. Through Jesus, okay? So, uh, I'm going to end up, let's just get into it. Let's get into it. I'm going to, based upon those principles, and we're going to add a third one near the end of the sermon this morning. I'm going to add a third one, I should say. Uh, there are two bad ways, two unbiblical ways to structure church government, and then what, a, a way that the, the Bible teaches. And I'm, I'm just going to warn you that it's, not, it's still going to be a little bit vague at the end of this service. We're starting to narrow down to concrete principles. But right now we're dealing with uh, important theological truths. And it's going to get narrowed down some, but at the end of the day, it's still, you're still probably going to have questions. What's this going to look like? like we, where, what are the specifics? And, and, and trust me, don't, please don't be frustrated with me. Uh, give me grace. Uh, we're getting there. It takes me, like most things, a long time to get around to uh, you know, the main point or what I want to say. And you know, God willing, I won't forget it by the time we get there. But that's a possibility because I do that too. So starting with these first two key principles, let's talk about, in light of those, what are two non-biblical ways that the church should be structured. And the first is, and you'll know what I'm saying, most of you, I think, is the Pope option. Now, I don't just mean for Roman Catholics, uh, although that's uh, true for them too. But the Pope option is uh, the notion that God represents himself to his church through one person. Like there's one key individual, and then God works through that key individual. You know, in the Roman Catholic Church, it's the Pope. But all churches have little miniature versions of popes. I told you last time I would like to be the Pope of St. James. I have modest expectations. But I'd like to be the Pope of St. James, where everybody has to kind of understand that what I say comes from God and needs to be obeyed. But unfortunately, as we'll see here, that's just not biblical. It's not the way that God uh, wants it to work. One of the main reasons I say this is because it just doesn't, one-person leadership doesn't happen in the Bible, and when it happens, it's a failure. One-person solo leadership doesn't happen in the Bible, and when it happens, it's a failure. So let me give you two negative examples. No, no, two positive examples and then one example where it doesn't work. So a positive example is, and some of you will know this story, from Exodus 18, Moses, who, I mean, Moses is the prophet, right? He's the, he's the greatest leader. You know, Abraham doesn't fall into that category. 
David is the king, but he's not, he does not even have the cachet in Jewish history as Moses, the great prophet, the one who actually you know, sat in his tent and wrote scripture as a hobby. You know? That's Moses. Moses is trying to like rule all the people. And remember in Exodus 18, his father-in-law Jethro comes to visit him and says to him basically, what are you doing here? This is crazy, man. Look, he, Jethro says, you, you can't do this anymore. There's two reasons. One is, you're wearing yourself out. And the second reason is, you're wearing the people out. And you, everybody knows this, right? You, you know this, that uh, if you've ever worked with somebody who's a micromanager, or you are a micromanager, that's like the easiest way. You've seen people burn out because they just have to be in charge of everything. Or you felt like, I need to be in charge of everything, and you burn out. But if you're working for a person like that, it wears you out too. That's what Jethro was saying to Moses. You know, two things are going to happen. One is, is that you're either going to get it micromanaged by the micromanager, and that's, that's tiring, or you're going to get ignored, not empowered, not equipped. That itself is tiring. And Jethro calls Moses on it. This is not the way, this is, this is not going to work, this solo leadership. Another example here. Uh, so, so Moses, anyway, I'm sorry. Moses gets elders to come alongside with him and help him share all those duties. He creates a team of leaders, a team of servants to help share those duties. Another example, this is a positive example too. You know, Jesus is going to uh, ascend back to his father. And what Jesus doesn't do is create a dynasty. Jesus doesn't say, okay, you know, Peter or John or Bartholomew, whoever, like, you're in charge now, okay? I'm leaving, but you're the man of the house. I want you to take over here. Instead, what Jesus does is create a team a team of leaders, to share the responsibilities. Because, and I feel like I say this all the time, and I'm, I'm almost certain I alluded to it last week, so just bear with me, but it's a point that's it's, it's worth making again. Because solo leadership imprints its strengths on those being led, but also imprints its weaknesses. Okay, so there's, there's, uh, there are certain things that I'm gifted to do and certain things that I'm interested in, Okay. I'm not good at everything, and there's a, a lot of things that I'm just downright bad at. And there are some things that I wish I was good at, but I'm not. There's only ever been one leader in the history of the universe who cares about theological orthodoxy and mercy ministries in the appropriate amounts. There's only one person who cares about youth ministry, ministry to middle-aged people, and ministry to seniors in equal appropriate amounts. There's only one person in the history of the universe who cares about working with couples and working with single people in the same amount, and that's Jesus. So just practically speaking, like if you guys would let me, foolishly let me be the Pope around here, the sole leader, what would happen is, is that St. James would be good at one or two things that I'm good at, and there'd be 50 things, probably more than that, that we're really, really bad at, that I'm bad at, but I would force us to be bad at by being a micromanager and by imprinting myself. And what happens, so we'll see this at the end, what happens is Jesus has a plan where the weaknesses and the sins of a soul leader are mitigated by that soul leader not being the Pope. By that soul leader not being the Pope, okay? Jesus, here's another way of saying point number two. Remember point number two is that God exercises authority over the universe through Jesus. Another way of saying that is Jesus is the only good soul leader in the history of the universe. Jesus is the only good dictator. He's the only truly benevolent, all-powerful leader in the history of the universe, okay? And yet, I think we all agree with this, and all of us who are Americans, our heart like connects with this because being American means nothing if not being anti, you know, anti monarchy, anti-dominating one-person authority. But, for some reason, even though we all know that, we all know what the Bible says about this, what I've just talked about. We know, the, we, we, we know about Moses and the elders. We know about the 12 disciples. We know that Jesus is the only true soul leader. For some reason, we still, part of us still kind of wants this. We still want there to be one dominant voice for God to be in charge of us. In history, Christian history, world history is littered with this desire for this one sole leader. 
So my mentor, uh, Pastor Walter at Good Shepherd, I wasn't a Lutheran very long before he warned me against the hair pastor phenomenon. You guys, are you guys familiar with this? It's, a, it's definitely a Lutheran thing. It goes back into the 1800s. Hair pastor, Lord pastor. I actually, just for kicks, uh, looked it up last night on the internet. Hair pastor has its own Wikipedia page. Uh, so go check it out. It doesn't have a whole lot on there. But the hair pastor is the notion that the pastor is the Lord of the realm. The pastor speaks for God. The pastor is the conduit by which you have contact with the Almighty. When the pastor speaks, you obey. This, this comes from bad theology. It comes from sacerdotalism. This notion that, you know, in John 20, when Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, I'm sending you out with my authority. I'm sending you out with the authority to forgive sins. That that was just for the apostles and for pastors. And it gets handed down from pastor to pastor. Now for the lay people, you get to participate in that. But really it's the pastor who has the authority to forgive sins. It's the pastor who has the authority to speak from the Bible. And that's just bad theology. It's, bad, it's sacerdotalism. That, this is one of the reasons, by, by the way, why, we, why I wanted to read Matthew 18 again this morning. Because Jesus doesn't say, where the pastor is in your midst, there am I in your midst too. Whenever you have a pastor, there you have the church of Jesus Christ. No, he says, whenever two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I'm in the midst of you. God's presence is not in the soul leader. God's presence is in his people, the body of Christ. And now you can kind of see where we're headed with this then. Anyway, before we move on to the next one, let me just ask you. I asked this last week. Let me ask you one more time. I need you to hold me accountable not to drift into the hair pastor way of thinking. Because I, 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 I'm going to get grumpy when things don't go my way around here. When stuff happens that it's not my decision or it's not the way I wanted, I'm going to find myself rooting against it to work. I'm going to find myself being a little passive. Or great. No, that's fine. Go ahead. If that's what you want to do, let's go ahead. I'm going to find myself being like that. And I'm going to need you guys to hold me accountable that that's not a biblical way of seeing the way life in the church should work. That's not my job. It's not my job to be the sole leader. What is my job? I'm not going to tell you because uh, we're talking about that next week. All right, we'll talk about the role of the pastor in the church next week. But it's something we're thinking about for all of us uh, over this upcoming week. So the Pope option, not biblical. Here's the second option. I'm, I'm going to say this, and uh, I want you to hear me out and don't hear what I'm not saying, and I'm going to qualify myself probably six or seven times as we talk about this because I don't want to be misunderstood. Let me start off by saying that I think, I quoted the, I, I, did the, I said the Winston Churchill quote several weeks ago. I might, it might have made it about capitalism. Democracy is the worst form of government in the world, except for all the other forms of government. I'm a big believer in democracy as an American institution. I'm a big believer in democracy as the best way for a nation state to get its business done. However, democracy does not work in the Christian church. Democracy is not a church government principle that's in the Bible. All right, so, so why, why not? Well, let me, uh, let me, here's another way of saying it. They never, ever vote in the Bible. You never see the Christian church voting, ever. Now, it's not because they didn't know that voting existed. They certainly did. Like the, the, the Athenians had quasi-democratic governments for them. The Roman, the, Roman, the, the Roman government for centuries. Now, at the time of Jesus, it was starting to get whittled away by Augustus and Tiberius. But for centuries before that, the Roman uh, Republic had had voting. The Senate, the House of Plebes, the, the two consuls were all voted upon in popular elections. So it wasn't like they didn't know about voting, like, you know, we Enlightenment people invented voting. But they didn't do it. Here's the reason why. So my family and I were on vacation. Uh, we, were, we were visiting Milwaukee several years ago with some friends. And we were at MacArthur Plaza in downtown Milwaukee. And it's kind of like the central plaza with all the big, beautiful government buildings around it. And the Milwaukee County Circuit Court building, which is just huge Beaux-Arts building, massive, you know, the big, everything you would think, concrete, not concrete, maybe marble. Uh, I can't remember right now exactly what it looked like. But huge pillars, you know, Greek pillars. And then the only thing that was, the only words that were on the building, carved at the top, huge words, were, was the phrase in Latin. Vox populi, vox dei. Anyone know what that means? It's Latin for vox populi, the voice of the people. Vox dei is the voice of God. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Now this, is, um, this wasn't made up by the good citizens of Milwaukee County. 
This goes back to a Whig pamphlet in England in the 1700s. And what it is is this, is that if you take God out of public life, which is what the Enlightenment did, it, as Nietzsche says, it killed God off, where does the authority come from? And this saying, vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God, is an Enlightenment way of saying, now we're in charge. God is gone, and now the people speak for God. By, by the way, I think that we all want elections in our churches, right? But I think that one of the things that, one of the, one of the actually, I didn't say this in the first service. It just occurred to me in between services as I was kind of reflecting on this stuff. One of the reasons why some churches crave that sole pastor leadership is because if, if I say to you, church voting is the voice of God. Whatever the church votes on, that's God speaking in the church. I think most, most of you who are Christians would be like, oh, oh, oh wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, don't think, I think that's probably going a little bit too far. But if I said, okay, well, then it's not the voice of God, then it's just kind of our own opinions. We'll say, well, I don't think that's going far enough. It's somewhere in the middle. And so there's this craving for meaning and purpose. And we kind of know that like, when we vote on stuff as a church, it doesn't have this eternal divine mandate behind it. So what we need instead is, where do we get that eternal divine mandate? Well, maybe a soul leader. I, that might be the case, maybe not. I'm not sure. But let me just say this. This is not biblical. Vox Populi, Vox Dei is not biblical. Let me give you a couple reasons. One, of course, is that it's idolatrous. The notion that people, the notion that human beings can speak for God is, is rank idolatry. And I think we all sense that. There's this fantastic book that I'm reading right now by David Coises called Political Visions and Illusions. I'm kind of reading it, you know, because the big election's coming up. And I try to, like, try to uh, get some civic stuff in my head so I can think clearly about issues and things like that. But the, the, the title of this book is Political Visions and Illusions, a Survey and Christian Critique of Contemporary Ideologies. And here's, he, in this book, he argues that democracy is the, the, the most efficient way for a free people to rule themselves. However, he warns against what he calls democratism, the notion that democracies are in, uh, inerrant, that democracies can somehow speak for God or make our, 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 uh, a perfect way to pass perfect laws. He says this, even the most congregational of churches, and the LCMS, a form of church government, is at its base congregational. It means that, you know, the synod's not in charge of us, the district's not in charge of us. Each congregation makes decisions on its own. And he says, even the most congregational of churches must admit that ultimate authority for faith and practice does not issue from the will of the parishioners, much less from the body politic. Here's what he means by that. It's not that, like, our desires as... We all get together and like what we choose, that comes from God. Much less our voting is like a way to speak for God. But the authority for faith and practice instead comes from the word of God as embodied in Scripture. That's where authority for faith and practice comes from. And this is why a vote in a church, and by the way, I'm not going to argue that we're going to get rid of congregational voting here. That's not where this is headed. But what I am saying is that congregational voting cannot substitute as the voice of God. It just can't. And, and, and too frequently in congregational churches, it does. It becomes like fiat. Another weakness of this, second thing I want to say about this, this I also get this from David Coises. There is, and this is kind of heady, I don't want to get too far off in the weeds. There's an inherent tension in democracy, and it's this. Democracy flows out from this notion that kings and popes and the aristocracy are not going to tell us what to do. We are free people. There's a tension between that, though, and democracy. Like, my freedom as an individual sometimes gets squashed by the votes of the majority. There's, do you guys know who the Proclaimers are? It's a Scottish rock group from the 1980s. They're popular in the 1980s and 90s. And there's a song that they sing called, uh, What Do You Do? And it, they're Scottish nationalists, by the way. They voted for, vote every time the referendum comes up for Scottish independence from Great Britain, always gets voted down. And this song is about that. And some of the lyrics in the song are, you know, what do you do when democracy fails you? What do you do when the rest can't see it's true? What do you do when you know that I'm in the 20%, but I know that we're right, but in the 80% is wrong, but they're in charge, and so, I, so we can't do anything. What do you do, they ask, when minority means you? This is an issue. This is a problem in democracy. It's a problem that we, that we all kind of agree with, though, it's, that, that we all live with, politically. However, in the Christian church, it can't be that way. 
The 20% can't be marginalized because they are not powerless as members of the body of Christ. They are, or, are organically a part of the family. Which I'll, I'll, I'll give you more positive ways to handle that in just a minute. Let me sit for just a few minutes longer on why democracy voting doesn't work within the Christian church. Again, I'm not arguing that we're going to get rid of congregational meetings and voting. I'm just saying that using that as our authority basis can't work. So this has caused a lot of fractures. This, this way of government has caused a lot of fractures in church and in, in people's relationships with their church. There's a member of our church now who's not here right now. Um, uh, she'll be here at the next service. Uh, she was a member of a local Lutheran church, and uh, they have elections, popular elections for church positions. And the way it works is this. In that church, if there's three spots open on a board or a committee, you have to have at least four people running for those three spots. So you see what's going to happen. One person is going to not get voted in. And she said, I just incredibly hurt by, you know, I, I, I volunteered to be on that slate and I talked to people. You know, people said, why should we you know, let you be on that slate? And I talked to them and I said, and then at the end of the day, I didn't get voted on. And I just felt horrible. Like this church decided that you aren't good enough to be on this. That sort of damage, that sort of like, it lends itself to power plays. It lends itself to the aggregation of power to the people who have the majority opinion. That's not, that's not a good way to be the body of Christ. That's not a good way to be the Christian church. Now, okay, so what did, so side question here. What did they do in the New Testament then? How did they make decisions? Well, they didn't vote. Actually, you know what they would do more often in the Bible than voting? And I'm not suggesting we do this. They would cast lots. Now, Acts 1, do you remember the story in Acts 1? Judas Iscariot offs himself, and the disciples say, we need 12 of us, and so we need one more. And what they did was, they had a group of people who loved the Lord, had walked with Jesus and learned from him, had been a part of the ministry, but weren't in the 12. And they said, okay, so these people are all qualified. And they pray, and they say, God, you know who you want to be in this position. This is right at the end of, the, of Acts chapter 1. And then they rolled dice. Right? Now, what they didn't do was this, okay? What they didn't do is say, okay, should we believe the Bible or not believe the Bible? Let's cast lots. That's a clear one. That's our, we already know that. It's in God's word. They didn't, say, they didn't say, should we focus on preaching or should we focus on ministries to the poor? They didn't have to roll the dice for that. It's already in God's word. Do both. But with this one, they took equally good choices and said, we don't know. They, they, they all are qualified. And I'm not... I'm not Saying that we should, I'm not saying that we should roll dice in congregational meetings. But what I am saying is this: there's an element of there that's good, and that is, we will decide based upon God's word what is true that we should do as a church. We don't need votes for that. The other stuff that we don't know, let's figure out a way to trust God and let Him decide. And I'm not saying that casting lots is the right way, but democracy is not the right way either. Empowering the majority and disempowering the minority. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a great way for a government to work. Maybe, maybe great's too strong, but it's the best way out of all the options that we know so far for a government to work. It's not the way that God's people should work in the Christian church. Okay, third way. This is, this is the biblical option here. And again, I'm not going to satisfy you. This is going to be vague, but it's kind of narrowing us down to where we're headed in the upcoming weeks, okay? It works like this. It's from the Ephesians 4 reading. The body of Christ is the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ principle. God doesn't rule over, Jesus does not rule over his church via dictator pastors or popes. Jesus does not rule over his church through congregational voting. Jesus rules over his church as Jesus in the body of Christ. That's what Ephesians 4 is about. So if you can turn there with me now. In your bulletins you can if you want to or in your Bibles. And let's look at a few of these verses. So, uh, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, I therefore as a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Whatever our government, as a, as a congregation, whatever church government we have, has to maintain the unity. So this is the way, this is the way uh, democracies work. and We just all expect it, okay? So we're going to vote for president here in a little bit. And some of you are going to vote for a president. And if that president that you vote for gets in power, you will not be happy if he all of a sudden starts catering to the people who voted against him. 
That's not the way democracies work. The majority, we go with the majority, right? Also, if the person that you didn't for, flip, flip side of the coin, if the person that you didn't vote for for president gets in charge, you do not expect them to start catering to your, to your positions. You just know, I didn't vote for that person. It's unfortunate that they got elected, and now my positions are going to get short shrift. That's the way it works. This is what Paul is saying here. It will not work that way in the Christian church. Maintaining the unity and the bond of peace, catering to the weaker ones. He doesn't say that here, but he does say it in 1 Corinthians 12. The weaker members, far from being like, sorry, you know, next year we have a congregational meeting, you know, try and garner support and see if you can flip the script next year. Far from doing that, the church is required to go to those weaker ones and say, what can we do to serve you? What can we do to help you? Maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse four, there's one, here's, the, here's the theological principle. Because there's one body and one spirit. If there's one Holy Spirit and each one of us who are Christians has the Holy Spirit, that means that we're one body. And now Paul doesn't just mean body in a metaphorical, like we're all one group. He means the body of Christ. Now, for those of you who are Lutherans, you're super comfortable with the notion that the body of Christ, which rules and reigns from the right hand of the Father, is here accompanied with the words of institution, is here with uh, the bread and wine. Maybe we're less familiar with, because we don't talk about it as much, with the notion that the body of Christ, which sits at the right hand of the Father, is present here as the body of Christ. That's what I mean when I originally said, the body of Christ is the body of Christ. How does Christ rule and reign over the world now? Through himself, through the body of Christ, his church. Maybe that's a weird way for you to think about what the church is, but that's actually the way Paul thinks about the church is that we are the embodiment of Jesus here on this earth. See, this is what the ascension means. The ascension doesn't mean that Jesus went up into heaven and now he kind of, you know, surveys everything. He sent the Holy Spirit, and you know, and he pulls some strings. It actually means that he rules and reigns over all things. The ascension means that Jesus, not that Jesus is now absent, but that, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you wherever you are. I am in St. James. Jesus himself, Jesus himself, lives in St. James, in the person of St. James, lives in Glen Carbon, I'm sorry, in the person of St. James Lutheran Church and other Christian churches that claim the gospel and worship according to the Holy Scriptures. That's the principle that we have to go by. Now, what does that look like practically? Key principle number three, Jesus rules in this world by his church. That's the third principle. So, this is a good thought to summarize. One, God rules over the whole universe. Two, God rules over the whole universe through Jesus. Three, God rules through Jesus through his church. The body of Christ rules through the body of Christ. How does the body of Christ rule over the world then? And the answer is by being the body of Christ in community, gathered around the word and sacraments, connected in relationship with each other. This is what it means. Jump down to verse, the, starting in verse 11. This is what this means. Uh, God gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, for building up the, you know, Christ's body, crucified for us, resurrected from us, being built up, that same body being built up here in St. James Lutheran Church until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Head of what? Head of the church, of course, but head of everything. We are to grow up into this body of Jesus Christ, which rules over all things. This happens in community. And this is where the great analogy of the body comes into place. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what does this look like practically? Again, not as concrete as, I, as I, I'm going to try to make it later, but let's start heading in that direction, okay? What does this look like? It doesn't look like voting, although we will vote from time to time because that's important. Let me get, let me, before we go on, let me give you a good example of what votes do in the Christian church. Now, in, in, in civic politics outside of these walls, voting gives mandates. It transfers power. It legitimizes positions, Right? But inside the church, what voting does is it just puts on paper decisions that have already been made. So I, I, you know, I've got pastor friends. 
I don't know, if, are you guys aware of this principle? I, I, you know, when I, when I went to Presbyterian school, we talked about it there when I was a Baptist. We talked, same, same thing. I have Lutheran pastor friends who will tell me, if I get a call from a church and they say, we're going to vote on you becoming our pastor, and they call and they tell me, we voted on you to be our pastor, and it was like 75% yes, 25% no, you turn that call down. Because there's some fracture there. right? That vote, like in a democratic structure, would confer the power. But it, instead, it, it just reflects what's going on in the body instead. Instead, what you want is, we call a pastor, and it's a 100% vote. Now, there's always outliers. There's always weirdos who vote no about everything. Not always. You know, I've seen 100% votes to call a pastor. And what that happens is, is it this. It's, the vote doesn't make that person the pastor. It's actually the Holy Spirit calling that pastor through the, the united, one-body voice of the people. And what the vote does is it just puts it on paper. It just is like, let's mark this down. Let's, let's stamp this. We are, the Holy Spirit is calling this person through our voice. That's how voting should work in St. James Lutheran Church. We should get together and vote, not, not as a pursuit of power, but as raising our voices in common. Again, it's always messed up. There's always people who vote no about everything. And that's, that's okay, too. Uh, but what we want is a unified voice stamping that the Holy Spirit is at work here, and we are one body, the body of Jesus Christ. Let me a couple quick examples, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll close and have communion. Families. Do, do you, healthy families, do they vote? On stuff like if you're like so we're going to go on vacation let's go on vacation uh, do you want to go to minnesota or do you want to go to florida now you might do like a vote in the sense of like what does everybody think but you wouldn't be like i don't maybe maybe your family does i'm sorry if it does like i'm not my, my family did maybe you you wouldn't be like okay we're all going to vote and whichever one wins that's where we're going you wouldn't do that right you also wouldn't say hopefully the father or the mother wouldn't say we're going to minnesota I don't care what any of you say. I speak on behalf of God. They probably wouldn't say that. We're going to Minnesota. If you want to come, fine. If you don't, fine, right? You wouldn't say that either. Instead, what happens is, organically, over the course of many conversations, over the dinner table or just chatting or just casual, like, man, I'd like to go to Minnesota. I don't know. Florida would be nice too. Yeah, that might be nice. Those sorts of conversations, the will of the family starts to develop. And it might be where you're going to go on vacation or where you're going to go for dinner or should we buy a new car or not buy a new car? Or should we downsize the house? Or, you know, should I get a new lawnmower? It might be any sort of those conversations, but hardly ever in a healthy family is there a vote which is going to confer power on the decision. Instead, it happens organically. That's the way it should be. Oh, better yet, here's a better example. Let's just stick with Paul's example, the body, right? I'm gonna walk to the back of the uh, sanctuary here when I'm done uh, preaching, and you guys all file out. And I'm, I'm gonna decide, I'm gonna decide, okay, I need to go back there. And what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to say, okay, right foot, what do you think about that? Oh, you want to go? Okay. And step forward and, okay, left foot, what do you want to do? You want to think? I'm not going to do that. Instead, my whole body, working together as one, is we're not going to vote on it. I'm also not going to, I am not going to consciously say, foot, move. It's just going to happen, right? Now, there are instances with that when that's not the case. You, you've talked to people who've, you know, lost a leg or something and they have a prosthetic and they'll tell you, so weird. I like actually have to relearn how to walk because they have a part of their body that's not, that's not been showing up at community. And now they've got to bring it into community and train it. Look, this is why the body of Christ is going to work. And I, I feel like I'm going to be coming down hard on some of you, and I'm not. You know, you, you know, God knows I love all of you, right? And my ways of doing things might not be the only ways or the, even the right ways of doing things. But let me just say this. Church principle, I've learned this like in churches my whole life. If somebody shows up at a congregational meeting and says, wait a minute, what did you say? What's going on here? What are we voting on? That person, 100% of the time, not involved in the life of the community. I mean, they might be faithful in worship. Good Christians love the Lord. They might come to worship. They might like sing with all their hearts. They might go home and have their devotions. But if they're not involved in the life of the family, and in the way those things change and grow by the power of the Holy Spirit organically, it's going to be a surprise to them. You know, like the kid who never comes, you know, the kid who's always absent at dinner times, and you say, hey, you know, next week, don't, don't forget, we're going up to uh, uh, Minnesota for the weekend next week. Well, uh, nobody told me. Well, you, you, nobody told you weren't there. You weren't part of that decision, you know. We didn't vote on it. It's, we decided that. 
That's what happens in the church. Commercial, strong commercial for being involved in community. If you're not involved in Christian community, if you're not involved in the end of Acts 2 stuff, if your vision of the Christian church is a place where you come and hear a, hopefully a nice sermon and you sing some songs and it kind of gives you some inspiration for your week, then you're completely missing out on the body of Christ stuff here. Now, I'm not saying adult Bible study is the only way to do this. It's one way. I'm not saying community group is the only way to do this, but you're going to have to figure out, all of us, me and you, all of us, we're going to have to figure out a way to be involved in the organic communal life of the church if we're going to be built up together like this. You don't want to be the prosthetic leg. right? And if you are, you want to get into the family and you want to be trained. You want some of that physical therapy to get you up to speed so that you can be part of that smooth, ah, smooth is too strong, you know, human beings being what they are, it's never that, it's never that clean and easy. But you want to be a part of that body of Christ as it goes where the body of Christ wants to go. This only happens in community. I know this is vague, and I apologize, but this is where we're headed. Church government structure at St. James has to flow out of the, the, the lordship of Jesus Christ as it's reflected. Not in, I, I can't be in charge here. Do you guys understand that? Or if you want to call me in charge here, it can't look like what we think it looks like. It can't be, I can't be the decision maker here. I can't be the boss. We also can't say, let's have congregational votes to make decisions. It's going to have to be the Holy Spirit creating us as his one body. Okay. More on that next week. Specifically, we're going to talk about what is the pastor's role then? In this scenario, if the pastor is not the Lord of the manor, what does the, according to the New Testament, what is the pastor uh, called to do in the Christian church? Thanks for being patient with me. I know this is a little bit weird, but uh, I think it's important. I think it's important. Okay, let's pray. Stand with me and pray, if you will, and then we'll uh, have communion. God, keep on working in our church. Help us not to be power seekers, but help us to be lovers of you. Help us to be lovers of your power the power of the resurrected Jesus. Help us to love one another. And even when we do have votes, if there are the, the few that are on the outside, help us to lovingly reach out to these and to welcome them and include them and to bring them into the family and to work with them. And help us to be people who love you and your kingdom more than we love our own power. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's continue in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray. I want to ask for forgiveness for myself as I stand up here and I talk, especially about point number one, about the, the false pope option. I'm real proud of myself and feeling all noble about uh, whatever it is that I'm doing, the fake humility with I don't want power. But everybody in here who knows me knows that I do want power and that I do want to be in charge and I don't like it when things don't go my way. And God, I need you to humble me. I need you to do your work here in spite of my attempts to get in the way with my own ideas, I need you to shape and transform me so that I'm a part of this body that contributes to this whole family, to this whole body serving underneath the lordship of Jesus. God, we want to be on your mission. We don't want this to be a social club gathered around shared ideology, shared theology. We don't want this to be a self-help interest group where we get together to get comfort primarily. We don't want this to be a worship club where we all get together, and primarily a worship club where we all get together and sing songs together and listen to sermons. All these things are important, but we want to primarily be the body of your son Jesus at work, moving around here in Glen Carbon, doing what he did in Galilee 2,000 years ago, healing people, visiting people, proclaiming your gospel, uh, proclaiming truth and righteousness, uh, standing up for uh, your kingdom. Uh, God, work that in our church by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, in your mercy. Father, as we come uh, to your table now, I pray it's so easy to get stuck behind the ordinariness of the bread and the wine. And for whatever reason, you've chosen to give yourself to us in ordinary signs, whether it's water and baptism or the printed word on the pages of the Bible or somebody reading your word out loud in a worship service or in family devotions or the bread and wine that we're about to receive from you now. Help us not to get stuck behind that ordinariness, but to see in that ordinariness your universality, the fact that you are everywhere that you have chosen to put your special presence here in this place, in St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon. Help us to celebrate that. Help us to, especially help us to see you. Not just to see you, but also to hear you. 
and to taste you and to smell you, to experience all of you for all of us here at Holy Communion. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because you've brought us into the throne room, into your throne room, inside of your son Jesus, our brother, your son, and now you've made us your children. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. Let's confess our Christian faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the night when He was betrayed took bread and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, take, eat. This is My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you. This cup is the new covenant in My blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
I'm not afraid. 